Hi, I'm Guy Powell, and welcome to the next episode of the Backstory on the Shroud of Turin. If you haven't already done so, please visit GuyPowell.com and sign up for more episodes. I am the author of the upcoming book, The Only Witness, A History of the Shroud of Turin. It is a historical fiction tracing a possible yet plausible history of the Shroud over the last two millennia. Today, we'll be speaking with Andrew Casper. He is Associate Professor of Renaissance and Baroque Art History at Miami University in Oxford. And for more information on his upcoming book, An Artful Relic, go to Amazon and you'll find out his book and more about him. But before we get started, I wanted to tell a short story of how we met. Uh, a few weeks ago, he and I were at the Museum of the Bible in Washington, D.C., where a new shroud exhibit was launched. It's a great exhibit, definitely an exhibit that needs to be on your bucket list. And uh, it really indicates how the Shroud of Turin is the only witness of the moment of Jesus' resurrection. And this is where we met. He spoke about how the Shroud of Turin influenced art in Baroque Italy. And with that, he introduced his book as well. It's called An Artful Relic, a, The Shroud of Turin in Baroque Italy. I'm just about done with it, and there's a couple of sections in here that are awesome. The, the whole book is great, and some of the artwork that's in there is just absolutely fascinating. So um, in any case, let me introduce uh, uh, Andrew in a little bit more detail. So as I said, he is the Associate Professor of Renaissance and Baroque Art History at Miami University in Oxford, Ohio, where he specializes in 16th and 17th century religious Im imagery in Italy. His research on the Shroud of Turin has resulted in numerous works of scholarship, most notably his book, An Artful Relic, and which was published by the Penn State University Press in 2021. He is a former Fulbright Fellow and holds a BA from the University of Michigan and an MA and PhD from the University of Pennsylvania. Welcome, Andrew. Thank you so much for having me on. It's a, it's a great pleasure to be able to uh, speak with you about the Shroud of Turin. Yeah, absolutely. And it's definitely one of my, uh, uh, I don't know, it's one of my passions, that's for sure. So tell me about your backstory and how you got involved with the Shroud of Turin. Yeah, so I first became aware of the Shroud um, in the late 80s, uh, you know, around the time when it was carbon dated. Um, I was young then, I was nine or 10 years old when that, uh, when that happened. Um, and, you know, I don't remember if it was right before or right after the obviously uh, controversial carbon dating of the Shroud, um, but there was, you know, an explosion of, of media uh, acknowledgments about this, about this relic, and I was fascinated by it. And I have maintained my fascination, you know, growing up and into college and, you know, read all the famous books by Ian Wilson and others about it. And my interest has always been from a historicist uh, perspective. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, it's always been sort of something I've always been interested in learning more and more about as more books and articles are published. And then my current orientation um, towards the Shroud of Turin from an academic point of view and from an historical point of view and from an art historical point of view more specifically, that really germinated in graduate school. As you mentioned, I got my PhD at the University of Pennsylvania. And um, while I was at Penn, um, I was taking a seminar, uh, a graduate seminar, and it was in the context of that seminar when I had stumbled upon 
um, 16th and 17th century printed um, engravings and printed images of the Shroud of Turin uh, that were produced around the time of its really kind of emergence onto the scene as Christianity's most preeminent religious artifact. Um, and it was at that moment where I realized, wow, there's a lot of material that is of direct art historical significance uh, that could be applied to the Shroud of Turin. And I actually spoke about this uh, potential topic as a dissertation uh, with my advisor at the time. And he says, you know, Andrew, that sounds great, but I don't think you should do that as your dissertation or your first book. Wait and do that when you have the time to really do it in the way you want to do it. And that time finally came after my dissertation, after my first book, which is on an artist named El Greco, totally unrelated to the Shroud. Uh, and it was about 2010 when I finally was able to start the research for this book. And then what, 11, 12 years later, here we are. Wow, fantastic. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, it is funny, a very similar story to me. I. Uh, I had heard about the Shroud, uh, you know, the, the STIRP project, uh, the Shroud of Turin Research Project in 1978. And I said, wow, that's really interesting. Never heard, never heard of the Shroud before. And, uh, and then, you know, kind of read an article here or two, here or there and whatever. And then, uh, and then 1988, the uh, radiocarbon dating came along and it says, oh, wow, that's weird, you know, and you know, that that turned me off uh, to it for a long time. And and then to your point about uh, some books and Ian Wilson in particular, uh, my book, I based it primarily on Ian Wilson's uh, book, The Blood in the Shroud. And so, uh, uh, you know, just fascinating. And, and uh, so great to see that his book is out there and uh, people are looking for it and, and what have you. Absolutely. Yeah. So, um, uh, so uh, now tell me, uh, let's, what's the impetus then for writing this latest book, The Artful Relic? Well, the impetus was, you know, I think trying to do something with this lifelong fascination with the Shroud of Turin, but really from an academic point of view, from a scholarly point of view, um, the Shroud of Turin has been ignored by people in my field. There's a lot of attention to the Shroud of Turin overall, as you and everyone, all the listeners, I'm sure already know. And those discussions about the Shroud of Turin that have been ongoing for decades at this point, um, so much of it uh, deals with the question of authenticity. And, um, and I don't weigh into that question to be perfectly honest, um, because I think actually what we're missing is an attention to the history of the shroud as a religious image. And it really doesn't even matter if you know someone, you know, listeners to this podcast. Uh, believe the Shroud of Turin is real or not, it doesn't erase the fact that it has this centuries-long history of, you know, generating this fascination by, uh, by, by Christians um, and becoming this preeminent religious artifact. You know, I'm, a, I'm an art historian, and I think sometimes people misunderstand art history to be, you know, just simply only about, only interested in concerns about, you know, who is this painting by and what's the title and all that kind of, and that stuff's important. Um, but really I tell people that I'm really a historian of religious imagery, which can include non-artistic or like unconventional artistic objects. And I think that my field needs to embrace the Shroud of Turin because as my book shows, um, there's a lot of interweaving between the history and the emergence and the conceptualization of the Shroud of Turin in the Renaissance and Baroque period. Um, there's a lot of interweaving of that with the more mainstream um, artistic culture of Renaissance and Baroque Italy. So really my impetus with the Shroud was, I wanna learn more about it, but I also wanna demonstrate that, um, you know, it is really open for serious academic scholarship from an historical point of view. We don't always have to think only about the contemporary question of authenticity. Yeah, it, very interesting. And I like your point too about uh, whether it's authentic or not, 
it certainly had an enormous impact on on art and all of the different references that you had uh, uh, you know to the different paintings of it uh, being included and the copies being made and things like that just uh, absolutely fascinating yeah so uh, you know one of the things though I really liked was uh, your story of Cardinal Borromeo and uh, and his reaction to the shroud and uh, and maybe why don't you tell us a little bit more about him and and what what uh, what was going on with with him and the shroud? Sure. Yeah. Just I think the, the backstory to this is uh, uh, Charles Borromeo is one of the key figures in the history of the Christian Church. Uh, he was a cardinal um, and archbishop of Milan uh, in the second half of the 1500s, uh, and he was one of the primary figures in the Counter Reformation, which was the Catholic split from the Protestant Church. Um, he was a major reformer. Um, and a lot of the, um, you know, a lot of the motivations on the part of the church to sort of, you know, establish what its belief system is and what its uh, rituals are and what its official doctrines are, a lot of that is tied back to um, Charles Borromeo. Well, Borromeo was famously extremely devout towards images and relics. And um, I think some people don't realize that he was really, I mean, just a, an absolutely fanatically uh, focused on the, on the Shroud of Turin. And so what happened is in the 1570s, the plague is waging throughout Northern Italy. And uh, it, it just runs rampant through his uh, city of Milan. And he survives and he made a promise that if he survives the plague, he was gonna go and journey on foot to go see the shroud. Well, the shroud in this moment is not in the city of Turin. Uh, it's in the city of, uh, of Chambéry, which is in the French Alps or what's today the French Alps. And that had been the capital of the Savoy family who owned the shroud. Um, well, Charles Borromeo wrote to the Duke of Savoy saying, I'm going to come and, and, uh, and, and venerate the shroud. And the Duke responds and says, well, I'll cut you a deal. We'll meet you halfway. The city of Turin, which is halfway between Chambéry and the French Alps and uh, Borromeo city of, of Milan, Turin also happened to be since 1563, the new capital of the Savoy family. So it's convenient for them to kind of move their primary dynastic relic to the city of Turin, which is saves half the trip for um, you know, the old and frail Cardinal Borromeo. And so he travels, he journeys on foot from Milan, and he arrives in Turin in fall of 1578, um, and he gets a private, you know, worship, opportunity to worship the shroud. But most importantly is this occasion of the famous Cardinal Archbishop Borromeo arriving in Turin. It occasions the uh, the public exhibition of the Shroud of Turin, and so there were actually two public exhibitions within two or three days of each other uh, in 1578, where a platform was built in the center of the city square in Turin. You can see pictures of this actually in my book, mm -hmm. um, and. Um, uh, there's a platform that's constructed and uh, and the shroud is then unfurled lengthwise to exhibit the, the images of the front and back of Christ's body and tens of thousands of pilgrims are reported to have uh, to have traveled to Turin uh, to see this alongside Charles Borromeo. Um, and this kind of set off then this over one century period of time where the shroud was exhibited publicly, not quite annually, but nearly annually for uh, the next hundred years or more. So Charles Borromeo and his reverence for the Shroud of Turin is really what kicks off the, uh, the emergence of the shroud as the most famous and most sought after uh, Christian artifact in existence. Yeah, that's interesting. And uh, you know, you wonder how the confluence of a whole bunch of other trends that were going on took place so you have then the, 
the the uh, you know you have uh, Martin Luther and his uh, rebellion against the Catholic Church. You have kind of Cardinal Borromeo is kind of trying to uh, you know reform the Catholic Church so that at least you know answers many of the uh, many of the uh, many of the the, uh, the the accusations from uh, Martin Luther on where it had gone wrong. Um, and I always wondered, I don't know if, how familiar you are, but it was it would be interesting whether Cardinal Borromeo was a, would have been a friend to uh, Martin Luther or would have been a, uh, a hater of Martin Luther. It's hard to say, <laughs> you know, I think, um, well, on the issue of the shroud, I think to bring it back, you know, to that, um, you know, I think there's a little bit of an overly simplistic um, lumping together of Protestants as being uniformly anti-image. Um, and Martin Luther actually was kind of ambivalent about images. I mean, there are of course cases in the North, in the Protestant North, of of churches being stripped away of all of the religious imagery, and they're you know thrown into piles in the yep. streets, and they're set on fire and whatnot. And that's really more of the um, uh, more of the radical, I think, Protestant reformers like uh, Zwingli and uh, uh, and um, Calvin. I think Calvin, was right? Exactly. Yeah. And you know, Martin yeah. Luther himself, I think, was kind of like, well, actually, there's mm. a place for religious images. Now, obviously, the Shroud of Turin is a little bit different because it's not just an image; it is a cloth that has this, uh, you know, purported history to have touched the body of Jesus and received the miraculous imprint of his body, and it also contains traces of his blood. So, you know, it makes it a relic and an icon simultaneously. And yeah, I'm not sure if, uh, you know, if Borromeo and Martin Luther ever got to, you know, hang out in a pub and drink and talk about the shroud. I'm not quite sure what they would say about it. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Well, I like your story of, uh, you know, of him, uh, you know, walking and uh, making a trek from Milan to Turin. It's, uh, and, and for an older man like him, I don't remember how old he was, but to be able to walk that far is uh, quite a feat. And, and certainly after that plague that hit Milan, and I don't know if he was sick or not, uh, it, I couldn't find any re references to whether he got hit or not, but certainly the death that he must have seen and then the thankfulness that he had that, because he believed, I believe, as I recall, he believed that the shroud was one of the reasons why uh, the uh, the plague was ended in Milan. He was attributing a lot of that to to the shroud as well. Absolutely, and I think that speaks to again the period that I study and the period that I you know address in my book. Um, you know, the shroud had this uh, you know supernatural, or believed to have the supernatural divine power. Um, and you know, certainly for believers today, that's still the case. But yeah, I think Borromeo uh, is again. I think it all really comes down to like the start of the modern you know, history of the Shroud of Turin does begin with everything that Borromeo believed about it and also all the efforts he went into uh, uh, to seeing the Shroud. And also, you know, Borromeo then went back to Turin three more times. He actually went to Turin four times in the final decade of his life. Um, and the final visit to Turin uh, in the 1580s, 1584, was um, right before his death. And he probably was quite sick then when he made that same journey. But yeah, I travel between Milan and Turin now on train. It takes, what, an hour and 15 minutes. And uh, you forget that uh, walking on foot would be quite an arduous undertaking. Yeah, yeah exactly. And uh, and I don't remember, I, I kind of remember there being some hills and mountains in the way. So uh, I get yeah, it's not a leisurely walk, I don't think. Yeah, I don't I don't think so. But, you know, on the other hand, back then, they, you know, people, uh, you know, they either rode a horse or they went on carriage or they walked a lot. And, right. you know, whereas whereas us, you know, with post, with uh, COVID, we're kind of stuck in our little cubbies and and uh, we don't walk at all anymore, just about. No, no, or at least I, I walk around my neighborhood, that's about it. <laughs> yeah, that, exactly, exactly. So uh, one of the things I really liked about uh, the book, and you had a whole section, uh, a whole chapter almost on it, which was the culture of the copy. Uh, let's talk about that a little bit. 
Yeah, for sure. Um, so the culture of the copy, which is not my invented terminology, I have to acknowledge, um, but it is um, a term that other scholars have used to describe um, this period of time um, in which religious images and religious relics um, are disseminated through the production of reproductions and of copies. And what's really, really fascinating about this is that we learn through the copies that are made of various religious artifacts, not just the Shroud of Turin, we learn that the conception of what a copy is can in fact be quite a bit different from how we think of copy today. So what happened to the culture of the copy is the Shroud of Turin, you know, it's great that it was is displayed publicly uh, nearly every year and it allowed tens of thousands of, of pilgrims to travel to Turin. But as many people that did go to Turin to see the Shroud, um, there are far more people that would never have that opportunity. So there was a need to make reproductions of it to sort of spread awareness of the Shroud and also to give um, worshipers opportunities uh, to venerate the shroud without being physically present in front in front of the original shroud itself. So the production of copies uh, went in two forms. First of all, there were um, inexpensive um, printed copies like engravings and woodcuts, uh, which were made through mechanical means through a printing press. And those could be made in, you know, hundreds at a time. And uh, some of these were distributed as souvenirs to pilgrims to be taken home. They could be sent away and collected, uh, you know, by whoever could get their hands on them. Uh, um, and they're ephemeral, so they're paper, you know, and a lot of them don't survive anymore because of their ephemerality. Um, but they contain all of the data that you need to be able to worship the shroud. They show an image of the shroud. What's really fascinating is they also, some of them also have like these scales where they'll say that, you know, the dimensions of the sheet of paper, which might be like yay big or so, you know, this is, you know, one eleventh or something, the length of the actual, so you can actually mentally reconstruct a full scale uh, you know, reproduction of the shroud mentally just from what the data is given uh, in, in, the, in the print. And those are really cool. But the other kinds of copies that are made are full-scale painted reproductions that are on cloth. And these cloth reproductions, again, they're, they're, they're roughly to the same scale as the original. They repeat all the markings of the original, the faint imprints of Christ's body, the, the markings of the, of the stains of blood, also the burn marks from uh, when the shroud survived a fire in 1532. It's one of the most uh, prominent things in the shroud, actually, these parallel uh, rows mm. of burn marks. Um, but what's really fascinating about these painted copies is that again, to, to sort of bring to bear this idea that a copy can be more than just a copy in the way we think of it today, that these painted copies then once they were completed, they were then actually like pressed up against the original shroud. And the idea was that touching, that physical contact of copy to original would allow the aura or the power of the original shroud to transfer over into the copy. And as a result, when those copies, those full-scale uh, painted copies that touch the Shroud of Turin, when they get scattered around the Catholic world, when you encounter a copy, you're actually encountering something that pretty closely matches the original, not just in appearance, but also in its sacred power. And this for me is really fascinating and fundamental and really kind of one of the foundations here for my book um, is this idea that, you know, when we think of a copy, for example, we often think, oh, it's a copy. It's just, it's just a, a reproduction. It's cheaper. It's a secondary kind of thing. It's not, um, you know, it's not as appealing as the original, but in this culture of the copy, Copies of religious icons and relics can actually be essentially full duplicates of those originals. They can carry the same power as the original. They wouldn't have seen it as, you know, a diminished form 
uh, derivative from the original. They, you know, it's a really kind of fascinating thing. And this again tells us more about authenticity, right? Like you can actually have a copy that is somehow both a copy, but also in its own way, an authentic thing, just like the original. Yeah, and I remember one of your stories in the uh, in the book was talking about, and I don't remember what what it was, who it was, but one of the princesses saying, "And please make sure you press the copy onto the original, just so that it, it captures that aura, just like you yep. were talking about." Yeah, and so these copies are also inscribed. Uh, they'll have these textual inscriptions uh, down along the side. Um, that say uh, in Latin, but translated into English, they'll say that, you know, this has been extracted from the original in Turin in whatever year it was. Um, and the word extractum is really interesting. Extracted, you know, I, I always tell my students, well, you think of like when you're baking and you use vanilla extract. I mean, vanilla extract is something that came directly from the source. It's a part of it, right? Um, and so when we think of a work of art, right, like a painted copy of the Shroud of Turin, you don't think of it as having a kind of material continuity in the way that something that's been extracted from the original is. It's like it's been pulled off, you know, like it, you take a piece of the of the original and that becomes the copy. And and, uh, and yeah, there's a absolute sort of pressing need, uh, no pun intended, but a pressing, pressing need for these images to be pressed up against the original uh, to allow for that transfer of power from original to copy. It's really yeah, fascinating. I, I like that part of the book too, where, you know, you use the word, you know, ex, extract of or something like that. Uh, and where and I'd like the way you now explain it, where you're actually extracting part of the aura that uh, that would have been in the in the shroud and now transferring maybe some of it over to the to this uh, this copy. Um, yep. now one of the things that you didn't mention, but um, <clears throat> I think it was it was either Russ uh, Brio or Cheryl White that mentioned it at the museum was that some of the copies got uh, were uh, woven in with a, a piece of thread from the original shroud. And, uh, you know, and I, I find it fascinating too, because to your point, the, uh, it, it seemed like the goal of the copy was to be able to transfer the kind of the, that religiosity aura or whatever it was. And this is then another way to kind of transfer that over. And, uh, and it's fascinating to see all the examples that you had in, the, uh, in your book in, that, in what I call the culture of the copy, which I thought was just, just fascinating. Yeah, no, it, it really is fascinating. And, you know, I think again, um, just the various ways that, um, you know, that gap between copy and original can be bridged, whether it be through pressing or through the actual interweaving of fibers from the original, which I actually don't know about. I'll have to learn about that. Um, but, um, uh, but yeah, it, it really, you know, I think it throws into um, pretty sharp relief, I think, the various ways in which our conceptions that we apply to the Shroud of Turin today, just the, the the conceptions themselves can be so different from the way they thought of those same things centuries ago. And I think you learn a lot about, um, you know, we learn a lot about ourselves today by studying, you know, our previous selves from the past. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And what's fascinating to me too, is that, you know, so you have the uh, the 14th century where it's in Lyre, France, and then it's being uh, venerated there and exhibited there. And then you have really the breakout uh, ostension and the breakout exhibition really with Cardinal Borromeo. And then, you know, like you said, over the hundred years, and it's, it's fascinating to see how the veneration of the shroud kind of evolved as well when it really became known, you know, originally. And then, um, and I, uh, you know, and then the Duke of Savoy, he's the one that it seemed to really, really promote the, the shroud right. as being in my, in my possession. And therefore I must be a, you know, a better Duke than the rest of you guys. Right. Yeah. I think, you know, I, it, you, you have to consider the, um, the, the, the political implications that, uh, ownership of the shroud, uh, entailed, 
Um, I don't think it's right to focus only on those. As some people do, I'm not going to name names, but I think it's a little bit disingenuous to um, to make it seem like it's like the cynical thing that like, you know, the Duke of Savoy was only in it for the power. There's no way that it was just that. I mean, there was an earnest, um, I think, desire to uh, promote the Shroud of Turns for religious purposes as well. But of course it happened that this Duke of Savoy sort of realized, you know, the power that kind of comes with the ownership of this um, of this highly unique and highly sought after religious artifact is kind of a perfect opportunity to not only spread awareness of the shroud, but also to consolidate power. Um, and again, with the Duke, you know, changing capitals from Southern France to the city of Turin, I mean, there's a need to consolidate power in that new place. It's, uh, it is opportunistic, um, but not just that, but, uh, you know, certainly that's, a, that's part of it. Yeah, exactly. Uh, absolutely. So uh, now uh, at your presentation in uh, in Washington, D.C. at the Museum of the Bible, uh, you told a couple of stories where you actually got to uh, more or less touch a, a, a copy that was several hundred years old. And then, you know, the kind of the access and some of the other stories that you had were just fascinating. Maybe you could uh, tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, sure. This is going to make my, my life seem more, more glamorous than it is, but the, the research for this book entailed, you know, all sorts of traveling to uh, back to Italy, um, you know, went on an, at least an annual basis uh, to Turin to, to, to do the research. Um, and of course, I had to go and track down as many of these copies as I could find. These copies are scattered all over the place. There's actually one in Summit, New Jersey, uh, which was, I mean, in a lot of ways, the easiest one, of course, to go see, but, uh, um, but there are others scattered throughout Europe, mostly in Italy that I had to go, that I had to go and see. And, um, and for me, these are thrilling because these copies, you know, I, from, you know, my academic and scholarly point of view, I consider these copies to be essentially every bit as important as the original from which they derive, um, you know, much like viewers at that time uh, would have thought the same thing. Um, and I remember, uh, the, so the first time I went to the city of Bologna uh, to see a copy of the shroud that's uh, at the cathedral there. It's a copy of the shroud that's inscribed Extractum Ex Originale Torini 1646, so it's from 1646. And, um, and I, you know, you have to do this all in advance, of course, you know, the, luckily through the miracle of modern technology, there's things like email addresses, even for Italy, there's email addresses for like cathedrals and churches. And so weeks leading up to my trip to Bologna, um, I was, you know, trying to track down, you know, someone at the cathedral who could arrange for me to see, because these are not put on permanent public display, like they, you can't just like walk into a church and expect to see it. Um, and so I finally, you know, through the like really helpful, I think it's a tourist office actually in Bologna, they were able, able to quickly track down uh, a workable email address for the cathedral. So I made an appointment on a certain day and time uh, after I arrived in Bologna. So I make my way to the cathedral and I, uh, you know, I go to the, um, I go to the, uh, uh, to the sacristy. Uh, where the priest is actually getting ready for mass. And, um, you know, I explain, I introduce you know, who I am and, oh, yeah, yeah, of course, yeah, yeah, yeah. Let me, let me, yeah, where's our shroud copy? Where's our shroud copy? And, uh, and uh, he gestures to um, like the very top of an armoire, like a floor to ceiling, like, you know, 12 foot tall armoire. He's like, yeah, just like take this bench, step up on it and like open the armoire and reach up. And, you know, I'm reaching up and I can feel like things wrapped in, in, uh, in bubble, in bubble wrap, you know, and he's like, do you feel like a long tube? Like, yeah, I got a long tube. They pull it down. It's like a shipping tube basically. Um, and so I bring it down, he pops the top off and he shakes it out. And then he unfurls the shroud, the, uh, the shroud copy, of course, uh, on a big, you know, long table in the sacristy. And, uh, you know, and this, this was my first time besides going to New Jersey to see that copy where it's kept under glass, you can't really get too close to it. Um, but my first time being really face to face with one of these copies and being able to touch it and, you know, take close photographs of it 
Um, I was on cloud nine. I remember just like texting my wife who was with my daughter elsewhere in Bologna at that time being like, this is the coolest thing I've ever done. And the priest is getting ready for mass and he's, you know, we're chatting about the shroud. He's like, yeah, yeah, we bring it out for Easter every now and then. And then he kind of stops mid-sentence and he goes, hey, by the way, what time is it? And I, I told him the time. He's like, oh no, I'm late for mass. And he runs off and he leaves me alone with the shroud copy. And uh, um, and yeah, it was just great. It was really, really great. Um, and you know, that, that story kind of repeated itself in various, uh, in various ways, but, you know, seeking out these copies of the Shroud of Turin, like gave me access to individuals I never would have met otherwise. I mean, I had, uh, there's a town south of Turin called Cuneo, C-U-N-E-O, which I'd never been to before, right at the foot of the Alps. Um, and, uh, beautiful, beautiful town. Never would have gone there if I didn't have to go track down the Shroud copy. Um, and I, again, I'd made arrangements in advance uh, through a contact of mine in Italy who knew someone there. And, um, and, you know, and they just rolled out the red carpet for me. I mean, I just was given like this sort of celebrity treatment, you know, the scholar from Italy or from the United States arriving in Italy to see this shroud copy and, uh, and a similar case down in Southern Italy outside of in a town outside of Bari called Bitonto, um, where uh, my visit to go see their copy of the Shroud of Turin made the local news. You can actually find it still today. If you, uh, uh, if you Google Andrew Casper, Shroud or Andrew Casper and Bitonto, B-I-T-O-N-T-O. First thing that comes up is the the local news outlets uh, webpage uh, that has the article of my visit uh, from America to go see the Shroud copy and uh, and and yeah, so it was a really great time to be able to track these things down. Oh, and others, I'll tell you one more story which I didn't share at the Museum yeah. of the Bible, um, where um, I, th I think demonstrating like maybe how today these copies don't quite have the same sort of degree of or heightened reverence. Um, there's one at a church in Rome, a very modern church in Rome out in the outskirts. I'm not quite sure when or how they got their copy. Um, and um, I had made an appointment in advance um, and I arrived the day and time. There's no one in the church. I finally tracked down a secretary. I introduced who I am. She's like, I have no idea who you are. Well, what are you here for? And I explained, I'm here to see your copy of the Shroud of Turin. And she's like, uh, you have to wait for a priest. I'm like, okay. Uh, is that she's like, but he'll be, he's out taking a coffee break. He'll be back very soon. Just sit out here in the hallway. I'm like, all right, fine. And you know, minutes pass, minutes pass, tens of minutes pass. I think maybe an hour or so pass. And finally a priest comes down the steps and sort of encounters me sitting on this bench. And I pop up and I introduce myself and I say, I'm here to see your Shroud of Turn copy. And he says, I have no idea what you're talking about. I don't think we have any such shroud. <laughs> Like, no, trust me, you do. Trust me, you do. Well, this woman, the secretary overheard this. And once he leaves, she goes, okay, come with me. And she op unlocks the door to the sacristy. And there it is just up against a wall, like in a frame, but underneath a sheet, you know, it's not like anything that they, you know, celebrate or they advertise. It's just kind of like this, like in my book, I kind of describe it as this, um, like this heirloom that's like, slightly embarrassing but too valuable to get rid of you know you just kind of have it packed away you know and uh, yeah I think like you know I was so excited to see this I think there was quite a bit of curiosity why I was so excited to see this thing yeah yeah what's wrong with this American <laughs> yeah precisely yeah with this funny Italian and everything yeah yeah <laughs> yeah it's funny but so that copy though um or any of those copies would be three four maybe five hundred years old Right. So yeah. So the ones that I saw all dated from the early to mid 1600s. So yeah, what's the math? Um, yeah. So yeah, yeah. almost 400 years old. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So even in that respect, it's it's you know it's an it's a valuable antique, and it's a and then if it had been you know if it had touched and had you know had that extraction of the aura or whatever, um, you know, and one of the things too is uh, one of the evidences of the authenticity of the shroud itself is all the pollen that's on it. 
And, you know, it could actually, those copies, if they had actually touched the shroud, they could have, uh, you know, maybe even uh, some dust from the, uh, from Jerusalem on them on the knees. It could have pollen on it from, you know, the pollen from, the, uh, from Jerusalem or Odessa or wherever. And then it could even have some, you know, dried blood particles for all I know. And, you know, so those things in and of themselves have, have definitely extracted potentially something of real value uh, right off the shroud. And of all those forensic investigations um, of the original shroud, and say what you want about the validity of them, right? That we have to acknowledge that there are not there is a universal acceptance of, of all right. of them. Um, but it is it is interesting what you say. Like those same investigations have not been that I know of been applied to copies, um, you know. And you know if they were in fact touched, I have no reason to believe that they yeah. weren't in fact touched against the original shroud. Um, I don't know, maybe the, uh, if there are any potential particles, you know, maybe the theory is they'd be too slight or just no one's thought. I have no idea why, but you bring up an interesting point. I don't know. I mean, you know, nowadays, if, if you really wanted to, you could, uh, and they, unfortunately they did this. They, uh, um, they started to vacuum the shroud and, and like the skirt <laughs> team would just went crazy. So what do you right. do? Don't do that. Yeah. And, uh, but you could potentially do the same thing with the, yeah. uh, you know, on the, on the knees or on the, you know, right. on the, on the, on different areas. And, potentially get some, you know, get some real uh, transfer of something that might have come from the original shroud. And so, well, if somebody wants, the... I was going to say, if somebody wants to pay for my trip back to Italy to see these, I'll bring a dust buster with me and I'll see what I might be able to scoop up. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm ready to pay. I'll tell right. you what, we'll do a, uh, we'll do a, a shroud a shroud copy tour and we'll go visit all the copies absolutely and then uh, we'll get you know a handful of people to uh, to come along and i think it'd be fun something like yeah. that pay <laughs> hey, my way i'll do it for free i'm not even joking <laughs> <laughs> i'll hold you to that <laughs> please it's listen it's been almost it's been over two years since i've been to italy so i'm dying to get back i'll go yeah. back this summer but uh yeah i'm dying so any reason if it means i get to like hoover particles off a crowd copy that's reason enough for me to go to italy <laughs> <laughs> i'm ready let's go well listen i'll even chip in for the hoover <laughs> awesome. right that works all right <laughs> that's right that's right well um one other thought uh one other question one of the things that uh, that's happened to me so i've written uh, five books and uh i've got my sixth book which is the shroud book i've written business books and uh my first five and then this one now as a as a fiction and uh there was always an aha moment there was always something as i'm writing it go wow i never thought about it that way but you know, as, and I don't know if you do, if this happened to you, but when I write, you know, you write a whole bunch of stuff and you have your outline and you're going through and you go, aha, I never yeah. thought of it that way. And then of course you got to make some changes to make it fit in. Right. right. And uh, so was there an aha moment for you when you were writing the, uh, the artful relic? Yeah, no, and that's, and I'm really glad that we have this shared experience of, of writing books. Um, you know, Cause I'll say, and I don't mean to like prop us up on some sort of pedestal, um, but you know, if you don't write a book, it's hard to know what that process is like. And all books are different, of course, and all processes of writing books are different, but, um, you know, it's not like, I think some people imagine that I sat down in my home office for a year and just like typed out this book. And it's like, no, this was a, um, you know, at least a 10 year period of like of gestation <laughs> in which I was doing research, I was going to Italy, I was coming home, I was thinking, I was writing some things and scrapping some other things. There were numerous aha moments throughout that process. Um, you know, and, you know, with my, you know, my, this is my second book uh, that I've written. Um, and with both of them, you start out generally knowing what your book is about, but you don't fully know until you have that first aha moment. 
And, um, and I don't remember where or when I had my first aha moment, but I do know what it was about. And it was, um, it was when I was making these discoveries that um, the way the Shroud of Turin was talked about in the 15 and 1600s, you know, in these printed published texts, like devotional manuals on the Shroud and, uh, and published histories of the Shroud that were published in the 1600s, um, as well as manuscript sources, you know, I'm in the archives and libraries in Turin, you know, just paging through all these, you know, reams and reams and reams of documents. And when it was the first time I first, the first time that I um, noticed that the way the Shroud of Turin was being talked about was it is a divine painting. And they didn't mean that metaphorically. They actually meant that very deliberately, like God was the painter who used his divine paintbrush using Christ's blood as pigment to draw the image of Christ's bloodied body on the surface of the shroud. This is a key aha moment for me because I'm an art historian. Now, the Shroud of Turin itself is by no means a conventional work of art. Um, you know, it is a, you know, it's not like a painting by Michelangelo or something that you can sort of think about it in the same terminology, or at least you wouldn't think you could think of it in the same terminology. But at that time, they are using the same terminologies. Um, there are eyewitness accounts of uh, witnessing the exhibitions of the Shroud, like, you know, from the early, sorry, the earliest ones uh, from the 1570s and 1580s, there's these reactions that say that the image on the surface of the shroud looked like an artist's sketch. And when they say that, that's not a way to sort of say that, oh, it's just an insignificant, like, you know, manufactured image. They're actually like heightening the importance of it because the idea of artistry was, um, was really loaded. You know, when we think of artistry, we think of something that's just by nature artificial and therefore fake. But they're saying this is like God's own, um, artistic talent on display here. You know, God as a creator is thought of as an, as an artist, you know, he sculpted man and he did all this stuff. Um, and so the way they're actually using artistic terminology to describe the shroud, you know, for me as an art historian is, is, is absolute proof that this, you know, that this object belongs to be considered within the artistic context of Renaissance and Baroque Italy. So that was, a, I don't know where or when it was I first had that aha moment, but that got repeated continually. And therefore one of the dominant threads through my book is this idea of, you know, God's divine artistry um, as the painter of the Shroud of Turin. It's really fascinating stuff. Yeah, I, I really like that. And um, and I, I used that, uh, something similar to that, but based on on your talk from, uh, from uh, the Museum of the Bible. And I said, uh, you know, and, and the, uh, the Shroud is a work of art, uh, but it's not a work of art from the hand of man. It is a work of art from the hand of God. Right. And, uh, and I think that it was close to the terminology that you used, although I, your story now, of course, makes it much better than, than I could do at that. And, uh, but very interesting that you saw that they were treating it as kind of a d divine artwork or divine artistry. And yeah. uh, very, very interesting. And even, you know, I mean, even like more specialized art historians like myself would would also realize that they're using precise terminology. I mean, like, you know, like, you know, term like a diseño and then colorito, which are standard technical terminologies that pertain to the manufacture of works of art in the Renaissance period. The viewers of the Shroud of Turin are not only aware of those terminologies, but they're also applying them to the Shroud of Turin, but attributing it mm -hmm. to God's artistry. So like, it's just like, it was just this mind opening kind of experience of saying like, oh my gosh, like, you know, I'm not just trying to squeeze the Shroud of Turin into the artistic culture of Renaissance and Baroque Italy. It's absolutely already there. We've just never recognized it before. Hmm. Yeah, fascinating. 
Well, the uh, definitely very fascinating, and uh, we're we're about at the end of our time. But is there anything else that uh, you'd like to mention before we close out? Yeah, I, I think you know I have enough experience now talking about the Shroud of Turin and discussing the Shroud of Turin that. Um, you know, I mentioned this at the beginning of our conversation, you know, it, the conversation that this course is so dominated by, um, by authenticity debates. And I think those are fine and good, but um, I don't care which side of that debate one falls. It doesn't matter to me at all, because I think the history of the shroud absolutely is relevant. It doesn't get canceled out. If you think the shroud is fake, that doesn't actually negate the history of it. If you think it's real, then this history kind of, you know, gives you the back uh, the backdrop to it. And so, you know, I just want people to listen to folks like me who you'll be noticed. I'm not taking a stance one way or the other. It is very deliberate because I want to show that it doesn't actually matter. It doesn't matter um, either way. The history of the shroud is absolutely fascinating. And, um, and I think it deserves to be paid attention to because we learn a little, uh, quite a bit about, you know, you know, how it is that we as human beings construct these frameworks of belief and, you know, where someone sort of, you know, where, where's that hook on which they can sort of, you know, hang their, uh, their, their faith in Christianity, you know, it all really can come down to like looking at the history of the way in which the Shroud of Turin was thought of, um, you know, centuries and centuries ago. Well, and then also, of course, I want everyone to buy my book. So, yeah, that's part of it as well. And with that, uh, we'll definitely promote it. So, uh, where can we uh, where can we buy this book, the artful so, artful relic, the Shroud of Turin in Baroque Italy? It, easiest is on Amazon. Uh, you can simply, uh, you know, on Amazon look for my last name, Casper, C A S P E R, like the ghost. Uh, and Artful Relic, or even Casper and Shroud of Turin, it should come up right away. Um, so Amazon, um, but really any online bookseller, I've noticed like Walmart has it online and all sorts of independent bookshops have it online. Uh, it can be purchased directly through my press, which is Penn State University Press. Um, but, you know, really anywhere that uh, the books are sold online, um, certainly you can find it. But uh, Amazon's probably the easiest. Fantastic. Well, definitely worth reading. And uh, like I said, the uh, the section on the culture of the copy and uh, actually throughout, I mean, I really enjoyed all of the different images that you had in there and the different renderings of a copy and how they were painted or how they were put together and and uh, how they were different uh, from an image perspective, how they were different than what you would actually what you actually see in the uh, in the shroud and uh, as it is today. So, uh, Andrew, thank you so much. Really appreciate it. And uh, I am going to definitely take you up on that uh, that trip to Turin. Uh, we will figure out some way to get that funded. <laughs> absolutely. I'm, so, I'm, uh, yeah, thank you absolutely. so much for having me. It's been an absolute pleasure. You are so welcome. And uh, otherwise, remember, Andrew Casper and Artful Relic, go to Amazon.com or anywhere else that sells online books. And then lastly, please stay tuned for other uh, videos in this series of the backstory on the Shroud of Turin. And please visit GuyPowell.com and sign up for more episodes. Thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs>